My conversation today is with author, scholar, practitioner, and podcaster extraordinaire, Greg Kaminsky. Greg has been a staple of the occult and esoteric communities for well over a decade. His show, Occult of Personality, was one of, if not the first of its kind, a podcast which for me is still reminiscent of the golden days of talk radio, and a scholarly and serious place for all manner of meaningful discussion from the widest range of committed practitioners and lauded academics. Greg is also an acclaimed author and scholar, yet for all his accomplishments, he's still absolutely one of the most grounded, approachable, knowledgeable, and unfailingly kind people I have met. It was a great honor to sit down and talk with Greg about his experience of Western esotericism, his published works, and to observe illuminating glimpse of an indwelling true and profound calling to the spiritual path. I'm Ike Baker, and this is the Arcanum Podcast. Your, your background, um, you know, was magic and occultism or, or I'll say spiritual development, um, was that always something present in your life or how did you get started in it? Um, that's a good question. How did I get started? I think I've always been really interested in these things um, ever since I was a child i can remember wanting to understand better what all this is and how it all works and because it seemed like there wasn't a clear really clear answers or direction or guidance in terms of like what is all this why are you here what are you doing what are you supposed to be doing and like it seemed like lots of people had things they thought they believed to be the answers to those questions. But it was clear once you dug in, like nobody actually knew, even though it seemed like the most important thing to know. And yeah, so I've always been curious about that. And just, it was like this part of me that I could never quite satisfy. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point. There's a tremendous amount of ambiguity, uh, you know, and some of that is, well, you've got to experience these things on your own. And, and, and a lot of it is, uh, well, sometimes there are, I guess people who are only maybe, I mean, this, and this is just speaking to my experience. I've, I've kind of had a pretty broad background. I started out in Eastern stuff really. Um, but being raised Roman Catholic, uh, and then going into, you know, um, I guess a Western iteration of Taoism and, and, uh, say Zen Buddhism, you know, there, you can stumble across people who are maybe teaching the stuff that are only halfway through, uh, themselves. So, I mean, that's a good point, you know, that, uh, kind of itch to go further. Um, now I'm, I'm sure you've spoken of this at, at some point before, uh, but for any new listeners, how did how did podcasting intersect with that interest? Yeah, so I had all these questions, and I started intuiting somehow that magic and 
Freemasonry and tarot and alchemy and all these subjects kind of were circling the edge of what I was trying to figure out. And at the time, I think it was like 2005 or so, there were not a lot of podcasts around and certainly not any that really explored these subjects in the way that I wanted to. So I figured I got some time. Why not do it myself? And that would give me an opportunity to talk to people who knew more than I did. And then I could share that with people who were also interested in it. And so I guess it it started kind of as a self-interested activity. And then it grew to become something I could share and learn from and connect with others. So it was really wonderful. I'm really blessed to have had that opportunity. So I really think it was totally worth it. Yeah. It's interesting too, that uh, it, it kind of mirrors in a microcosmic way. Uh, you know, I guess sometimes magic itself and and that initiatic path we don't always go to it for the best reasons or or i will say i'll say like the most spiritual reasons like you you kind of said it was uh, there was a self-interest there and but at a certain point it just kind of certain some things kind of take a life of their own depending on how much you put into it yeah and, uh, and then they become something that you can share which you know thank god because uh a cult of personality was a huge influence on me not just doing this, right? Like I was in a similar situation, right? I mean, there was a point on the internet where you couldn't find really any information um, about this kind of stuff. So getting into magic and the occult and initiatic orders, it was nice to be able to turn to a pod where there was kind of a forum happening, yeah. not just not just kind of white noise. <laughs> it's like people who know what they're doing uh, are 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 talking. I mean, I find I find also that conversation in general is coming some becoming somewhat of a lost art. Uh, yeah, you know, I think it's it's kind of important to to preserve that too. But um, obviously, you're a practitioner and an author as well, like many of the guests I have on. Um, what I I'm really interested in about your particular approach is this kind of bridging of Eastern and Western perspectives, not just the teachings, right. But the perspectives, um, and you know, like your latest, uh, I believe it's your latest, a revelation of wonderment, um, and books like pronounce. So you're obviously interested in magic, the occult tarot, things like that. And then, uh, you know, uh, you you have a degree in in this stuff too, right? You it, from Harvard. Yeah, I have a degree in medieval studies. Yeah. So then, how does the Eastern stuff get uh, kind of? Um, where's where's the meeting point there? I mean, did you did you go and seek that out? Did you did you grow tired of the Western kind of uh, approach, or how'd that happen? It's that not really at all. Um, I think what happened was that. I felt like I kind of hit a wall. Like um, I was interested, like I said, in these questions, like who am I? Why am I here? What is this place? And 
I found magic, Freemasonry, tarot, alchemy to be intensely interesting and clearly have something to communicate, but it didn't seem like they had the methods to practice that would actually like lead me to becoming the person who knew the answers to these questions. And so I kept looking for someone who had some clue, like, cause obviously people say like, well, you need to do this or you need to study that, or you need to learn this. But when I looked deeper, when I like looked at them, the person telling me this, like I didn't see any evidence that they were actually knowing the answers to these questions and living in a way that demonstrated that they knew them. So my conclusion was basically like, you're right, people tend to teach even though they're not finished themselves. And so I kept looking for someone who was finished, who actually knew what they were talking about and could tell me what I was missing. And then when I finally met that person, it turns out they teach Buddhism. So I was like, okay, well, then I guess that's what I'm doing because that's what you teach. And that's the way to, for me to learn what it is that you know. And so it wasn't really a choice like I wanted to abandon Western paths or that I wanted to practice Buddhism or any of that. It was just that the guy who knew the answers to the questions taught this particular path. And so that's just how it went. If he was a plumber, I'd be talking to you about plumbing now. So <laughs> that's excellent. <clears throat> I, and I mean, I think for all the reasons you just listened, listen, this has the potential to be um, a, a very important talk for my audience and for myself and for this podcast, because we're really getting to the crux of the matter here, which is, um, you know, what does it take? You know, there, there's, there's, there's all these, traditions and and vague verbiage and and there's mm -hmm. everything so shrouded in mystery but yeah like you're saying you you know it when you see it you know when somebody kind of embodies that i guess if you want to look at it if you if we wanted to use western verbiage that solar archetype um but that's what var what variation or, or school of of buddhism did that end up taking you down so my teacher teaches vajrayana buddhism Buddhist Tantra and it's taught from like a Dzogchen view and so it's Nyingma tradition of Vajrayana Buddhism which is the old tradition and I mean I feel like the main differences with what I'd encountered previously in this is that it's a totally coherent living tradition. And there's a living master who teaches it. So, and to me, that's important because I quickly came to find out you cannot, you can't get gnosis from no gnosis like you can't get something from nothing in a sense so 
without the enlightened master, there's not really a chance that you could even accomplish that because it's not what you think it is. It doesn't appear the way you expect it to appear. It doesn't act the way you expect it to act. And for many reasons, the whole realm and all the beings in it really have zero interest in you, you doing this thing and yourself included. So it's extremely difficult and it requires the one that knows already. And then it requires this sort of coherent structure of methods that you can work through to actually produce changes that will take that are more or less stable i guess yeah that's that's an, that's an interesting point uh that you have to say also about this idea that it, it doesn't happen the way you think it's going to happen um you know that's something that i kind of stress uh in some more of like my writings and the, the podcast interviews that i've done is that um, you you really need to throw away or at least like suspend these preconceptions that you have because what happens is they interfere with the practice itself because you're constantly projecting those expectations onto it. And so the, 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 the system then doesn't have a revelatory aspect, right? Because you're attempting to anticipate what this is going to look like or, or, or um, what the, how this is going to to look in your life, how this is going to affect you. So I think that's that's a really apt um, point just in general about initiatic paths. I mean, it, uh, from what I understand, right, I my background was in, in Zazen and it really wasn't that long. I went on to the Taoist esoteric stuff because I studied Chinese medicine, things like that, <clears throat> chi theory. But I understand um, Buddhist Tantra and Vajrayana in particular to have some some pretty esoteric connotations. Um, have you found uh, any overlap? Um, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not fully aware of how far along you are in, in your path in, in that stuff. I do know that there's kind of like a prerequisite period in, in these traditions. I have a friend who, who, who did it. Um, but is there any overlap for you? Are the two, are the two systems kind of uh, consonant in any way? Or are they completely just? Well, I, I feel like, they're completely congruent and overlap in terms of the theory, like what you're trying to do, what the goal is, the broad general sort of strokes about how one goes about that. Those are all completely the same. What's really different is, again, the sort of this living enlightened master who's the teacher although if i think about like the origin of western traditions it's not at all strange because like christ was a guru obviously so it's not that radical um but really like it's the methods i find that are what is really different Tantra uses mantra and visualization of the deity as the primary method. And 
there are similarities to practices in the Western traditions, but they don't really go to the depths and extent of this where you're doing like mantra and visualization for hours at a time and just kind of go into like a trance state basically. Um, and the things you can discover in that are really, really way different. I feel like than what I've found in, in the Western traditions. And a lot of it, I feel like is like the grace of the guru, like actually being able to convey the blessing force or wisdom to the disciple. And then when doing practice, like the willingness to sit through, like there's a certain duration of really intense boredom and the desire to like do anything else. And if you can push through that each time you practice, like what you discover is like, shocking i think and so there's a lot of of points of similarity i mean basically this idea of like uniting with the divine purification of one's mind and body um sort of learning devotion like learning what the divine is and why one is devoted to that and sort of the notion that beings who are closer to divinity can help us to get closer if we ask for and are willing to receive their help. So there's there's tons of of similarity, but it, it there's a departure once one actually like sits down to start practicing the methods where it gets quite different and requires a lot more guidance and a lot more intense sort of finding one's way in in doing things that there's no real way to describe in words yeah and i think also what what's striking to me is uh, this idea also that you know the western traditions not only textually, but um, in terms of the actual lineages, they're quite broken. Yes. They really are quite broken. But part of me, you know, this the whole Rosicrucian uh, sort of ideal, or I don't know if you want to call it like hermetic, is is this idea that you know the secrets are in nature, and 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 they're largely symbolic. So again, consonant with what you're saying, transcending words, really. And uh, so part of me wonders if you can connect with. With the symbols, if you can, if you can have the 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 Gnostic experience, if you could then, you know, sort of, I guess, reinvigorate a line. But that's you know, that's more of like a rhetorical sort of thought on my own part. And then the other half of the the situation really is that we live in a culture in the West now, which has become so radically individualistic that it's like not many people are gonna want to sit in tutelage you know they just don't want to do it they don't want to hear what you have to say and then you're kind of scratching your head like well why'd you come here type of thing i think that's one of the first 
one of the first lessons is that that faith, that submission to somebody. But but like your to your point, right? You're saying you saw somebody who embodied that. You know. Yeah. So it's I, hard to to kind of admit that we can't do it ourselves because you're right. Our culture really cultivates this notion of like do it yourself, self sufficiency, like. Like I might need a teacher for a time, but not forever. Like uh, I can learn it from a YouTube video or from reading a book or, you know, whatever for dummies and I can, I'll, I'll be fine. Right. And in our culture, that kind of works because no, like for the most part, no one's really an expert in anything. And we all kind of accept this sort of mediocrity across the board and, to the point where we're like in the midst of social breakdown and we're just like, yeah, I guess that's just how it is, you know, but that's not how it is in the spiritual realm. And you do need someone that actually knows the truth and knows what they're doing and how to teach and how to prevent you from screwing up terribly badly and knows how to talk to people. So they don't just run away. Uh, Cause it's we just don't want to admit that we have to like go to someone else and ask for help and then submit ourselves as like i don't know like i'm not capable please help me it it feels demeaning and but it, it's really not it's actually kind of an ennobling activity to admit that you don't know that you can't do it yourself that you're going to the one who does know and can teach you and has the capability to help and make you into someone who can do. So there's a million reasons why it's worthwhile to have a teacher to learn something that you don't know. And, but once we get into this realm, it, it's really challenging for people because most people have this notion that spirituality is somehow connected with self-improvement you know, because we want to grow and mature and become the people we're meant to be to fulfill our potential. But you do that in spiritual life, but that's not the actual goal. And so it's weird because you think it's about self-improvement when you start, but then at some point you realize like, I may be improving, but that is not what's happening here. Like that's not what we're doing. It's just a side effect and then it becomes, well, like, if I'm not improving myself, like, what am I actually here for? And then you can kid yourself, like, well, I'm here to, like, become enlightened, or I'm here to, like, know the secrets of the universe. And then you realize, well, that's clearly not it either. And then you pretty much realize, like, I'm just here to help the teacher who's teaching other people and myself. And, like, that's what I'm doing here. <laughs> and it's it's humbling but it's also like real it's realistic and it's it's not a facade anymore yeah well i think that that's that's a key point of humility is not this kind of self-deprecating you know groveling it's it's an admission of the reality of the situation really a lot a lot of the times so i think that's really that's a really important thing to say um, and I'm, I'm glad to have you touch on this stuff because you speak with, 
you speak with a, a level of insight really you know like you can it's a lot of times you know or sometimes you'll talk to somebody about these kinds of things and it, it ends up being very uh mysterious but you know i get the real sense that uh, what you're saying has a lot of practicality behind it, you know, and it has a lot of um, application to human experience in general. So that, that kind of universality is for me, it's, it's a big, uh, it's a big clue into the fact that like, yeah, you're definitely living what you're talking about. Yeah. You're still there. Yeah. Sorry. I'm just going to switch my video. Sorry. No problem. Yeah, I think what you mentioned is important because if if wisdom doesn't touch us where we are, like where we live in every moment, then how is it actually useful? Right. So, I mean, I've spent years now sitting in rooms with small number of people who just the way they are is just completely mind-blowing it's hard to comprehend but i think the main one of the main takeaways is that true wisdom does have a completely practical down-to-earth simple aspect to it and it applies to everyone always and that's what that's how we know it's wisdom. That's how we know it's real because it's not temporary. It doesn't apply just to human beings in the human realm. It applies to all beings anywhere, anytime, always. And yeah, it's so you, that's one way to know if the person you're dealing with actually is wise or not is because the way they speak and the way they act is not like set apart or separate right or aloof in any way at all in fact they're more into whatever it is than most anyone else so and then of course they don't see themselves as a subject in a world of objects and that also allows them to function in a very different way than human beings do yeah yeah, it's definitely something I have struggled with in the past, this idea of kind of like, I guess, spiritual toggling, where it's like, yeah, I'm very, very um, reverent, and I have, I'm inflamed with a sense of prayer when I'm in ritual, but, you know, I'm, uh, you know, just completely enraged in traffic or something like that, you know, and look, I mean, it's we're human it's going to happen but the, the the idea of of coming to that 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 wholeness that integration of all that. otherwise what is it for it just kind of boils down to like solo cosplay if you're not applying it to your life um but your your latest book a revelation of wonderment uh in that you you discuss the nine sphere teachings of Trakton rinpoche am i pronouncing that correctly yeah yes okay so uh, I'm I'm just interested. And I'm sure some of our uh, the listeners are interested in the contextual background of that. So what are the nine sphere teachings? Can you go into that at any level? Yeah. So the nine spheres teachings are what we would call teachings on view. So they're teachings on 
what is reality? How do we view reality? What does that mean? How does it function? And so the nine spheres are what you call dynamics of divinity. So normally when we think about the divine, it starts out in a mode where we're praising all the qualities of the divine. You know, it's it's light, it's vast, it's open, it's free, it's glorious, like all of these words and ideas and concepts. This is called the cataphatic approach to divinity, where you're like effusively praising and devoted to divinity. And then at some point in that, trajectory the words no longer suffice the images and the concepts fail to actually convey the shock and awe of the divine and then you go into the apophatic mode which is the divine is unknowable it's ineffable nothing can be said right nothing can be known even and then there is, if you keep going in spiritual practice past that point, which is a tremendously significant point in and of itself, one can then, in the depths of meditation, know the dynamics of divinity that arise to be known after that. You know, the openness, the open, vast nothingness of divinity, this sort of way that it wants to disclose its secrets to itself, this sort of tender-hearted resonance. Um, and there's many other qualities, including like a, a brightness or a luminosity and a knowingness quality that knows itself as nothing and brightness. And so these dynamics are present prior to consciousness or beingness or form or time or space or any of those things that we conceive of. And so the book is really trying to describe how we can know the echoes of these dynamics in our lives, in the world how we can appreciate them. But a significant portion of the book is really describing how, like th this is the natural state of reality prior to any human being. But then there's the question of like, if this is the way it is, how do I end up as a human being in the human realm, deluded and confused about what is? And so there's, it's kind of exploring how wisdom becomes delusion. And if we know how wisdom becomes delusion, then the chances that we can work our way back to wisdom become greater because we can then see how the mistake of interpreting perception wrongly happens naturally before we have a chance to even do anything about it. But then we learn what it is supposed to be, 
like what this really is, what's going on, what I really am. And then we can start acting from that perspective. And then that becomes sort of like its own path in and of itself, because all that matters is really how we hold appearances. Do we hold them as divine or do we hold them as things? Because it can't be both. It's got to be one or the other. Either it's wisdom or delusion. And you get the choice once you know, but you can't do both at the same time because wisdom obliterates delusion when it encounters it. And it and delusion simply cannot exist in the light of wisdom. It's like darkness and light. Once the light shines, the darkness has, just dissolves. It's nowhere. So, and it, and then through that exploration, one comes to discover, you know, what is divinity? And then how do I fit into that? And what does that mean for me in terms of how I'm supposed to be in the world? Because it's none of it's separate, right? It, it, it all, it's either it's wholeness or it's not. And we say it is. Right. And do, do you think that those have, so that understanding that you come to, um, is that, is that more, I mean, I'm asking in your conception. Is that more of a personal thing or are there universal aspects to that that are applicable to to all human beings? Or, or do you think it's it's more of a very personal thing? Because I think the heart of what we're talking about here is gnosis, you know, for Western practitioners, right? This is a species of gnosis, I think, that you're talking about. Yeah, it is. And in fact, in the book, like I have a section here, what is real? Question mark. And I can just read the beginning. Sure. To you, because I feel like this kind of addresses what you're talking about. So, I, in the book, I use this word reality quite a bit. The word reality is derived from the word real. We may think we understand what is real and what is not real in terms of substance, material phenomena. But what is physically existent is not what is meant by real in the context of this book, nor within the context of Dharma. When I say real or reality, this is referring to what is permanent and available to all. Mostly human beings take objects in appearance as real, but what the teachings are saying is that only divinity is real, meaning only the nothingness that is bright, which appears and perceives as real. So with this meaning, we can begin to see that what we take as real is anything but. Quote, to the real, the unreal is not. It appears to be real only because you believe in it, doubt it, and it ceases. When you are in love with somebody, you give it reality. You imagine your love to be all-powerful and everlasting. When it comes to an end, you say, I thought it was real, but it wasn't. Transiency is the best proof of unreality. What is limited in time and space and applicable to one person only is not real. The real is for all and forever unquote so gnosis can't be personal in that sense because there's no person who's who's knowing that in order to be gnosis there has to be like an obviation of the experiencer meaning gnosis is the 
absence of a subject perceiving objects. And because like we said, it's wholeness itself. So when wholeness knows wholeness as wholeness, that's gnosis. There's no person there doing anything. Perceptions happening, but the mind that perceives is nothing. It's empty. Wow. Yeah. Well, first of all, that's beautifully written. Um, but it's it, it, I was I was kind of hoping that you would, you know, secretly hoping that you'd give that answer. Um, because to me, so everything that we've that we've spoken of, I'm I'm uh, of necessity. I'm filtering through what what is my really most established philosophical language or ontological or how you know uh, theological, whatever you want to call it, uh, which is Platonism. And so you know that right there is 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 the idea of the you know the noetic realm the thing that and and literally the criteria for reality was things that don't die <laughs> you know they don't change permanence as you're saying and and again this this idea of 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 lethe and nemosine you know not you know uh or anamnesis really you know um mm -hmm. it, it's all very 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 consonant so uh but i feel like a lot of this stuff gets it can it has the potential to get washed out and in in you know uh, let's face it occultism particularly of the western variety is is kind of experiencing an explosion right now that seems to be like if people are going for philosophy they're going for this stuff uh and a lot of it is somehow oriented towards that idea of a personal kind of gnosis a personal understanding but you know the and i think it's so telling it's almost like mysticism that's been conditioned by our like, you know, secular paradigm. We're, re we're, we're removing the locus of truth from that which is and that which I experience, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I, that's, I think that's a really important thing to, to kind of point out is that, yeah, uh, I love the fact that you're talking about this, this ultimate gnosis being transcendent of the whole subject object uh, conundrum. Yeah, it's totally necessary to go beyond delusion. And delusion is to see ourselves as a human being in the human realm. I know it works superficially to sort of navigate 3D reality, but if we are honest about the suffering in our own lives, we would admit that it doesn't actually work. It's never, it wasn't meant to work. Nobody ever promised us it would work and it doesn't. So we can continue kind of stumbling and bumbling, trying to make it work, even though there's no evidence that it ever will or ever has, or we can try something different, which I think if you actually meet or talk to those who've accomplished the path you'll see, well, they don't suffer at all. Like their lives, simple as they are, work without any problems at all. Mm. And I can't do that even if I want to. So at some point, like self-honesty has got to penetrate and just reveal the fact that like what we're doing isn't working and it can't work, it won't work. 
but there is another way it does work right yeah don't let that lead you into kind of nihilism right it's like yeah. you just have to i use this really poor analogy um but it's just like okay if you're going to talk about um societal conditioning or whatever it is because that's that's typically like people will bring their societal conditioning or programming into spirituality which is attempting to uh, on one hand stabilize them and on the other hand completely uh, obliviate them um and and so we're, we're we're always filtering that stuff through that that perspective lens but the, the the really poor analogy I use is that if somebody taught you baseball, you know, they taught you the rules that were completely wrong so that every time they played against you, they'd win. You wouldn't necessarily, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be the most mature thing to walk away and say baseball doesn't exist. You just go find out the rules, you know, you just figure, kind of figure it out. And again, it's not a great analogy, but I remember when I kind of woke up from that whole, um, I guess I think Mark Stavish has called it therapeutic blasphemy. That whole period in my life were um, just railing against uh, the paradigms that uh, I felt uh, lied to by. Mm -hmm. I kind of I realized I'm like you know what I'm just buying I'm swallowing wholesale its antithesis, which was kind of almost seemed like it was just already prepackaged there waiting for me to devour. <laughs> you know, totally. So, so it's. Uh, it's it's just crazy you know like uh, all of it this this whole experience um especially like what's going on now uh but from what i'm hearing from from you know you in the you know your understanding of these teachings you're working them out yourself honesty and you're being able to sort of juxtapose the talk against the walk with this teacher that you found it sounds like it involves a fair amount of sacrifice. Would you, you consider that to an, an accurate assumption? Oh, yeah. But I mean, sacrifice has to be understood. Like, I didn't have to give up my family or like leave some great job I had or like, like give up all my money or anything like none of that. Like, he, he didn't want any of my money. He didn't want my family or my job or any of that stuff. And yeah, it's, but the thing is like, there's no talk of like any cost or price to pay. And if, again, if I'm honest, it's because the price is too high to even bring it up in conversation. Like, how are you going to say like, I don't want your money. I just want your life yeah you know what i mean like the cost is so high that like it's not even polite to bring it up in in a conversation because what's being asked is like well, you want these teachings you want to know the truth of reality what's going to cost you everything my teacher's constantly saying this is the path of giving up everything and getting nothing in return and he's not joking or it's not a, it's not like sarcastic or playful it's you have to literally give up your made-up identity for the truth and that yeah that involves giving up everything because all we're made of is concept and ideas and words and thoughts
And those, if we go back to our definition, that's not real in the first place. So you're only being asked to give up something that was never real to begin with. And yet it's really, really difficult and painful to even do that. So we're so much enmeshed in the delusion that it's not like just the way I think or what I believe. It's my whole world. The whole, my whole world is, is the delusion. And so, yeah, you have to give it all up. And even if you wanted to, like, you're not able to do that in one fell swoop. So it takes all these practices and time and energy and angst. Yeah, it, it is tremendously difficult, but it's also life is tremendously difficult anyway. So we might as well make it meaningful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's and it's a hard pill to swallow that everything, everything around you really is the source of all your suffering. You know, the, the, all the things that you 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 desire and all the the um, identities that you that you wear the the personas, you know, the masks and things like that. But to me, even in the even in the Western tradition, it, it's just it's just harder to convey these things because there's. You know, even you take a look at masonry, for example, you know, it's just kind of getting you to, there's a strong emphasis on virtue. I would, I would consider it like arite, you know, and, and eudaimonia, excellence and well-being, that, that, that type of path. But ultimately it's, it's getting you to approach yourself with this kind of alchemical formula, you know, to dissolve what's the, the elemental qualities there and and perhaps perhaps reorganize them under the auspices of the quintessence this you know the spirit um and that's just one phase of the work and it's it's easy enough to say that but there's so many trappings in western occultism of magic and you know academic esotericism that people really can it's like a shopping mall almost it's like no 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 over here over we're going this way you know <laughs> so um that's not to disparage it because it's it's my mother system you know i i love it i i'm active within it but uh you know there is that whole like misidentification sometimes between magic and spiritual progress and i like to think of them as as dovetailing at certain points right you know you're, you're you can cultivate uh magic and then at a certain point it kind of within that dissolution of persona um you find that that you're a part of this magic that it, it it's something that you be that you inherently are rather than just things that you that you do but on the tack of talking about for a moment things like you know virtue uh perhaps as prerequisite to to some of these paths you know like kind of kind of that idea of like proneos kind of like you know you in your book and, and stuff like that you're a freemason i have that correct yes yeah. So where does does masonry still fit into your practice at all? And or are you just devoted to to your your Vajrayana and, and Tantric studies? Or have you found that you can practically synthesize them? Well, I mean, there's no reason one couldn't do both. But I think like if we contextualize it, like Freemasonry is the preparatory teachings and work 
that prepares one for the esoteric school. Like all of the things you learn in masonry about hierarchy, about fitting in with the group and working together harmoniously, um, upholding each other, um, you know, in your activities and in your life and, you know, keeping confidence and sort of like all of your actions, behaviors, and attitudes sort of coalesce together to form the lodge and a group of people like working together for a common goal, how to, you know, dress appropriately, how to memorize appropriately, how to show up on time and be responsible for yourself and your duties and obligations. All of those things are incredibly important and necessary when one begins the esoteric path but there's a lot of people who come to the esoteric path without having gone through masonry and they generally don't have a great idea of any of these things and so they then have to learn them quickly in a haphazard fashion and you know the results vary but i would say to me Freemasonry is the ultimate preparation for esoteric school because everything it teaches you prepares you to begin doing that work. So I feel like it's incredibly useful and beneficial, and I do recommend it to people who are looking for that sort of preparation. I think it's the best thing you could do. But when people ask me, you know, can they find you know, gnosis in Freemasonry or something along those lines. I'm like, no, but it, it that's not its purpose. I know it talks about that and it upholds that as an ideal, but there's no methods you can practice every day that are going to lead you to that. And despite the fact there are many wonderful accomplished men in freemasonry there are no enlightened masters that i've ever met or talked to or heard of in freemasonry and that's not in any way a denigration of the craft at all it's just me honestly trying to look at it and see like all right what is it promising us what is it delivering well to me it, it delivers what it promises but it doesn't deliver things it doesn't promise and nor should it. And so I think there are people that go into Freemasonry looking for those things and expecting to find them. And they're often bitterly disappointed when they, when they don't or can't. But I think it's just the fact that Masonry does what it does and it provides what it provides and it does it brilliantly. So I think it's great and I enjoy it, but I'm where I am now, like the, the practices that I do every day don't involve Freemasonry because I'm, I'm working on something else now, but never would I have made it here without Freemasonry either. That's great. So um, I have uh, a canned question that I ask everybody towards the end of our conversation. Uh, so for the audience that has been listening to our conversation uh, this afternoon, 
and maybe they want to dive in a little deeper to some of the things that they've heard you talk about. Could you list um, three books that you would highly recommend that they go and check out? And you can definitely list your own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Okay. So I think the Proneus book is good because it does address like the function of Western esoteric paths and compares them to Eastern paths and Buddhism and I feel like that is a really good explanation of those things. Um, I feel like if someone wanted to know more about like what enlightenment actually is, like my books are not really going to convey that because I'm not that. But I think if you could read like my teacher's book, he publishes under the name TK. And there's a couple books from a few years back. This is one, Eye to Form is Only Love. And then this other one, Original Innocence. I think these two books like are a brilliant demonstration of what the enlightened mind sounds like, says, thinks of, mm. notices. They're not books in the traditional sense and meaning like there's letters there's poems there's quotes there's ramblings um they're really incredibly brilliant like it's hard to imagine like if you there's someone who's so full of wisdom that like even in everyday casual conversation it's like 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 lint that falls out of their pocket is like the most amazing thing you've ever heard and can like change your life so the person who's like that then writes some books and then it's i can't you know I, they're not books i can like sit and read like you just sit open it up anywhere and just read a page or two and you're like mm -hmm. i'm done <laughs> that's great so, yeah all right so uh i'm gonna check those out actually um i love the cover art too are those original uh or, or did an artist do those uh this one uh gorgeous a woman named sky did that. gorgeous gorgeous i love that and then this one i think is a photograph of tiger's nest meditation retreat in Nepal or to somewhere Tibet, maybe Bhutan. I'm not sure exactly where it is, but um, Bhutan apparently. Great. Yeah. Well, uh, Greg Kaminsky, thank you so much for lending all of us uh, your time. I, I really feel like uh, this is one of the more important podcast ep episodes that I've done, even though it's, it's, you know, we only typically go an hour here, but uh, there's just so much here that's getting to the point, you know? Um, so I really appreciate everything that, that you have to offer. And uh, I look forward to all and any future endeavors. And I hope I hope to speak to you again. Yeah, me too. Ike, thank you so much for this opportunity. It was really great to speak with you. And I really appreciate your what you're doing. And I'm thrilled to follow your podcast and your lectures because I'm it's really awesome to see your success. So 
more more to come. Thank you. 